So we're glad everyone's back. We want to welcome anyone who's new to with us. Thanks for being with us. All right, EB, it's all yours. Yay. I love talking about the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> and you will have to forgive me that I tend to also stray into the Acts of the Apostles because that's Luke's second, you know, uh, it's his sequel. So we will talk about the Gospel of Luke, but every once in a while, you'll have to reel me back in when I start wanting to also talk about Acts. All right. So tonight, what we're going to talk about is one of Luke's most predominant themes, one of the things that sets him apart uh, from really all of the other Gospels, not just the other two synoptic Gospels, Mark and Matthew, but even that rogue maverick Gospel John. There is something about Luke that is just drawn to the power of story and the power of storytelling. And so tonight we're going to look at a couple ways that this theme of telling a story comes across in Luke's writing. Luke gives us this wonderful preface. He's the only writer that does this, that says upfront why he's writing and what it is that he's after. And I think you'll start to see how storytelling, how uh, the power of story is already present in the first four verses of Luke's gospel. He writes, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly narrative for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you've been instructed. So I want you to notice here that Luke is the only gospel writer to specifically refer to what he's writing as a narrative. This is a story, meaning it has all of these pieces that aren't just segments that have just been compiled. This isn't a scrapbook. What this is, is this is a very detailed and a very artistically construed story. This is a narrative. And I love that, that he tells us, pay attention to the order that I tell the story. Pay attention to the details. That somehow in this act of me telling the story that I got from other people, and I've seen other people tell the story, other people have written the story, Luke is also prompted, I need to be a part of that storytelling community. I have a voice. I have a unique way of telling the story. And so the gift that he is giving his audience is that they are going to get his particular narrative. Now, what's interesting is that Luke also tells us that because this is these are the events around a community, in some sense, he is trying to write a history. But I want you to notice something really interesting. The point of writing history is not to record the past, but to shape the future. Because notice why he's writing this. He says, I decided to write so that you, Theophilus, you literally lover of God, so that you may know the truth. Or it can also mean, so you will feel the security about the things which you've already been instructed. He's taking these events of the past and these stories from the community's past, and he's not passing them on so he can preserve the past, 
but rather so he can shape this person, Theophilus, so that people who love God and read the story, they will in turn have a certain feeling about the story, that they will be shaped. And so this notion of history is the first way, really, that Luke brings up storytelling, that history is told in order to produce something in the future, in order to shape communities and people, in order to pass on beliefs and ideas that will make things happen in the future or will continue the community. So I think it's really interesting that right from the beginning, he lets us know that this gospel isn't so much to tell you about what happened then, but so to make sure those things that happen then also happen in the future. That those events that have been fulfilled among us, those events will keep happening. We will still be seeing God fulfill promises. We will still keep seeing God work in our midst. And we will still see God um, in places in the world for us to interact and minister. So I think that that's a really wonderful thing that Luke gives us is that history is for the future. The other way that Luke introduces this storytelling emphasis is how he uses scripture. So what he's doing in telling his story is he's actually using a very old story. And so just notice how this sounds and how this would sound to someone who had been steeped in the stories of the Old Testament. The very beginning, after Luke finishes his preface to the reader, he begins his story proper. And he says, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abiah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both of them were getting on in years. Well, if this story sounds familiar to you, that's good because it should. And it tells us that you have read your Old Testament story as well. Because for those who had been growing up listening to these stories of the Hebrew Bible, when they hear the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, they also hear Sarah and Abraham. They hear Rebecca and Isaac. Hannah and Elkanah and Manoah and his wife. All these stories are about people who can't conceive and who God gives them the blessing of an unexpected child. One that was a long time in coming. One that could only be ascribed to a miracle, to God's presence working through this. And so as Luke is introducing his story through this birth narrative of John the Baptist, He's really saying that his story is part of this old, old story. Or maybe that that old, old story isn't as old. Maybe it's always with us. Maybe it's more of a continuous story than an old story being revived. And we'll see ways that Luke continues to always bring Israel's scripture of the past into his own narrative. When Jesus teaches his very first uh, scripture lesson or preaches his very first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, we actually see exactly how Luke uses scripture. So he has Jesus come to Nazareth, Nazareth, 
And he reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and the words that he uses. Now, mind you, this is only in Luke's gospel. None of the other gospels, they might say Jesus went to Nazareth, but was rejected. But only Luke has the scripture that Jesus read. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, here's the important part, right? And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone were fixed on him. And then he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why has it been fulfilled today? Because Jesus is going around and literally healing the sick and setting captives free and giving sight back to the blind. And the whole rest of Luke's story, we will see Jesus do just that. And so Luke has this way of taking scripture and showing his audience that it is not a thing of the past, that it is present. It is still, in a sense, being not only crafted, but enacted. And that the fullness of it is being demonstrated right in front of them. Jesus does this another way. And again, this is only in Luke's gospel. A lawyer stands up to test Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it there? Now, I want you to notice the dichotomy of those two statements. What has been written in the law? That's past. And what do you read there? How do you read it? That's present. Luke is very much saying in having Jesus teach this way, that there is this energy that happens when the scripture of the past meets its own present fulfillment. And that the scripture that's been written in the past has lots of ways that the reader is going to start seeing it come alive. Not only will Jesus be the one to proclaim this release, but as we see, as we get into the Acts of the Apostles, they will in turn heal people from blindness. They will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to Gentiles of all people. And so we see that the scripture of the past, when it meets the new interpretation of the day, it does some really amazing things. It's not stale. It's not stuffy. It's not dried out. In fact, it's very surprising. And I hate to be a spoiler, but it's so surprising that this group tries to push Jesus off a cliff. I mean, that's very surprising. <laughs> um, that's how shocked they were. And so it's really interesting to me that that's the way that Luke uses that story in his story, is he's actually not trying to just pay homage to the past or make himself sound more conservative by using scripture. No, no. He uses scripture in order to demonstrate how radical this is. Another way that Luke uses not only scripture, but storytelling as well is his emphasis on testimony and how it is that each person has these experiences where God has promised and God delivers and the people witness that. 
And so in this passage, you're going to see something really interesting because he's going to do what we just saw. He's going to combine his use of scripture, but he's also going to um, really talk about what it means to have something fulfilled and how these stories collide. So in chapter three of Luke's gospel, he writes in this very big, eloquent Greek um, that we don't get in any of the other gospels. Um, it's like this big fanfare. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Itcherea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Oh, I just get chills when I read that. Um, but what I love about this is notice how the first part here, you have the world's story, right? History as we know it. All of these people in here are historical figures in some sense, and they're ruling historical locations places we can find on a map and on a timeline, right? The story of the world. And what does it come into contact with? The story of scripture. There is one crying out in the wilderness, prepare God's way. And so the stories of scripture are here literally colliding with the story of the world. And what are we going to get? the best of the four gospels to record Jesus's events and activities, in my opinion. But I, I love that. And Luke gives us a very subtle way of letting us know what a big deal this is. And I want you to notice how the word is bolded and in all caps, because I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to talk about it. That word there is the word rhema. Now, this is so cool because there's two words in Greek for word. There's the word you're all probably familiar with, which is logos, right? And we hear Jesus is the logos. And it means letter or word, or that's where we get the term, the word logic comes from logos. It's a means or a system of understanding. Rhema, though, is an interesting word because it's not always translated as word. Sometimes it's translated as thing or as event. It means the enacted word, the word that at one time was spoken, but now actually is a reality in the world. And Luke uses this throughout his gospel, and he's very unique in doing so. Um, the angels, when they come to the shepherds, right? And they tell the shepherds, all right, you're going to find a baby. He's going to be in a manger. He's a savior of the world. He's for everybody. As soon as those angels leave, we hear the, the shepherds say, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing. That is this rhema. Let's see this event, this thing where the words we've heard spoken become reality. 
And further down, it says Mary treasured all of these words and pondered them in her heart. That word is also rhema. These are all the things that God promised her. Remember back in chapter one, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're going to conceive the son of God. This, these words are talking about Jesus, who is this word that was once spoken and now is an actual child lying in her arms. And so Luke gives us this wonderful connection where he's trying to let us know that storytelling isn't just making things up. Storytelling is the act by which we take God's promises and we actually see them and bear witness to them arriving in the world. And this is why Luke has the best Christmas story. It's just, it's far superior to Matthew's. Don't even bother with Matthew's. When uh, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple, and also in chapter two, there's a man there named Simeon. He's a prophet, and he has been promised by God that he won't die until he sees the Lord's Messiah. Now, what I love is he takes the baby Jesus in his arms, and it says, that he tells God, master, you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. And again, that is the enacted word. This is a word that you spoke, that you promised what you would do. And now Simeon is holding this word in his arms. It's there in the temple, in their very midst. And what is he doing? He then starts telling everyone else, this child, this is the light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is child is the glory of our people, Israel. So it's this wonderful way that Luke is using scripture and using this pattern of God's promises being fulfilled, but it's also not complete until there is the emphasis of witness that those who have seen it, those who have felt it, those who have received the fulfillment of the promises they have to tell people about it. They have to point to these events and say, notice this, pay attention to this. And then this is like the crescendo (laughs) when we get to the resurrection scene in Luke's gospel. And again, this word only comes up in Luke's gospel at the resurrection. The women, when they meet the angels at the tomb, They don't remember that Jesus had said, I'm going to die and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. Although not sure how they forgot that. That seems like something that would stick, but we all, we all do things differently. And then it says, once they're reminded of this, they remembered his words and guess what those words are, his rhemas, his words that he spoke that have now been enacted. They're literally standing there at the empty tomb. It is the word that had been spoken, but is now an empty tomb. It's an actual tangible empty tomb. Now, what's interesting is that when the women go to tell all the male disciples, they did not believe them. And Luke says, these words, these rhemas seemed to them an idle tale. And what's interesting is, What this sets up is that the women's story, their narrative was far more real and far more tangible, even though they hadn't seen the risen Jesus, than any of the doubts that the male disciples would have. 
That's the power of a story, that it can communicate that kind of truth and that kind of security, even when it's being shared with someone who wasn't there. But their words had been Jesus's enacted words. Jesus's very presence emerging from the tomb on that day, that was the substance of their words. These are the same words that we get to share as we tell people where we have seen God at work and how we have seen God move in the world and among us. And of course, this word itself, witness, is so powerful. Luke uses it in his prologue. He says all of the events that have been fulfilled among us have been handed on to to us because he's a second generation Christian. He wasn't there. Who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the world, excuse me, of the word. So he's saying it's very, very important. These are people who gave their testimony about what's gone on. People who are part of our community, who we respect, who we trust. And then this word witness, which in Greek is the word martyr. Martyr means witness or testifier. Let's just let that sink in for a moment because that's that's a weighty word to us, right? But at the very end of the gospel, Jesus says, you are witnesses to all these things, that the Messiah suffered and rose again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So the, the whole gospel begins with this is our responsibility as people in the community of faith to be sure that we bear witness. And these are Jesus's last words in the gospel to his disciples, reminding them, this is your primary purpose and identity. You have seen these things. You have seen words that have been spoken become realities, become tangible, become flesh in the world. You must let people know this. You must bear witness to this. Another type of storytelling that is unique to Luke's gospel are Jesus's parables. Now, before you start saying, but Evie, there's parables in all the gospels. True. But first of all, Luke has more parables than any of the other gospels. And Luke has more unique parables that don't show up in any of the other gospels other than Luke. So parables are really Luke's strong suit. It's really what makes Luke's gospel quite famous. And when you start seeing that list, I think that you'll be impressed with Luke's repertoire. We only get the Good Samaritan in Luke. We only get the lost coin and the prodigal sons. And no, that's not a typo. Only those in Luke's gospel. The rich man and Lazarus. You know, the one where the rich man dies and he goes to Hades and Lazarus, the poor man dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom. And there's this emphasis on you have to listen to the prophets now (laughs) and that it doesn't matter whether someone comes back from the dead, but the prophets have been with you always. Remember, this is Luke's way of saying it's not the old story and this is the new story. That old story is still with us and still in play. And all we're doing is still enacting it. The rich fool, the one that has the bumper crop and decides, I'm just going to tear down all my barns and 
build up new barns so I can store more stuff. And then he dies. The barren fig tree where the compassionate gardener intervenes when the master wants to cut the fig tree down. And he says, no, 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 let me tend it. Let me give it extra love and then we'll see. And what's really interesting about that parable is the narrator, Jesus, never tells us what happened to the tree. It's always still an open possibility. The Pharisee and the tax collector. One seems good and the other bad, but one was repentant and humble and the other not. So which one is justified? The persistent widow who badgers the dishonest judge until he gives her her justice. And Jesus says, be like her. And the dishonest manager who gives away his master's money so that he will have places that he can be welcomed in in his forced retirement. Strange stories to be sure, but some of these very dear, very familiar beloved parables. And so we have to ask, and oh, I forgot to tell you this. This is another interesting thing. Almost all of these parables take place while Jesus is on the road. In Luke chapter nine, verse 52, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And that begins what we call the travel narrative. And so between that point and Luke 19, Jesus is on the road towards Jerusalem and he's traveling with his companions and he's traveling with his disciples and the odd random people that wanna go with him. And the whole time he's telling these stories which I think is really interesting that there's something about being on the road and on the move that just makes stories even more appropriate, which I think Luke is doing on purpose when we think about how the gospel moves when we get into Acts. These stories on the road won't be the last stories shared on the road. But why parables? Well, don't freak out when you see math. I promise there will be no quizzes. I promise that this really will be enlightening. <laughs> Why tell parables? Well, what is a parabola, a parabola? That's where we get the word from parable to parabola. Well, what you're seeing on the screen is just that. And in math, a parabola is a curve. It's an arc. And it means that both of the, the sides after the, the main curve in the middle will both go on indefinitely, this way parallel to one another. Now, what's interesting is the reason it's called a parable is because it means to come alongside and be parallel to. So as you're listening to a story, you're actually understanding it alongside what you know to be life and situations. It's, it's something of a mirror where you can see yourself and you usually, when you're reading a parable, you do see yourself as one of the characters. Now, what's very interesting about this is Jesus tells us, only in Luke, why he tells parables. Well, I shouldn't say Jesus tells us, Luke tells us this. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There's something about those two facts that necessitated this type of story. 
they're getting close to Jerusalem. They're getting close to this epicenter of religion and power and politics. And so as they get closer, it's more important for Jesus to tell them these things in stories. And I think what's happening is he's trying to avoid um, making things hard and fast. He's trying to hand them something that they can adapt and use as needed because they're going into a place where their senses and their logic and their identity is going to be confounded, is going to be assaulted on all sides. And it says he's telling them these stories because they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There are some things that they clearly don't understand fully or understand as deeply as Jesus would have them to. And yet, the way that he's going to explain it so that they can begin to understand is in a story, which I think is really interesting that Jesus treats his disciples the same way we teach our children and the same way we all learn things through identifying with characters by looking at all of the possible motivations for why things happen. This was Jesus's chosen way of doing it. And I love what Hannah Arendt says. Um, she's an ethicist and a political scientist. And she writes this, storytelling reveals meaning without committing the error of defining it. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> because that's the thing about a parable. It is not fixed. You don't want to ever define it. All right, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you are the Samaritan? That's what I was always told. We should identify with the Samaritan, the one who does the right thing. But let me ask you this. If you're reading the story of the Good Samaritan and you're lying next to the road having been beaten and bloodied, you'll identify with the man who has to accept help from someone he immediately thinks might be an enemy. You might be the innkeeper. You might have to help sustain someone else's good work that you didn't come up with on your own, but that you're pleased to join in when you see that it's bearing fruit. Do you see how the parable keeps shifting? And that it's possible to be any or all of those people at various times. Jesus hands on these parables because they're not fixed. And because they're not fixed, they will offer ongoing life-giving support to people trying to discern how they ought to live and be in the world. And what's interesting is when we think about it, that means that all of Luke's gospel itself can function as a parable. Now, I don't mean it's a made up story, don't, don't read that, but that the way the story comes alongside of us and we find our mirrors in that story. We see who we identify with and who we don't want to identify with. Sometimes we're convicted by the fact that we do identify those, that when we see them in the story, we wish that wasn't us. And I'll show you, and I know I said I wasn't gonna talk about acts, but here we go. 
I want to show you how Jesus in Luke's does function as this parable for the apostles in Acts. Now, think about the story of Jesus, right? We've got his ministry, his healing. We have his passion, his suffering. He's persecuted unto death. And then we have his resurrection. And before that passion, what do we have? We have his life giving to others, his healing, his teaching, his embrace. And we think, yes, that should be the parable, the, the story that comes alongside the apostles and Acts. And let's see if that actually works out the way we hope it will. So in Acts chapters seven and eight, Stephen, who is meant to be this Jesus figure, is martyred. He even says the same things Jesus said. He says, Jesus, don't, don't hold them responsible. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, that sounds a lot like Jesus. And then the whole church is scattered and they're all persecuted. And Saul, you know, who later becomes Paul, is like hunting them down, dragging them into jail. This already, we can see the mirror of the church as Jesus, right? That the figure of who Jesus is, the church in Acts is definitely mirroring that. And you can see that they're looking at Jesus's story and they're patterning themselves after what Jesus did. Peter and, and John, they heal a blind man, just like Jesus did. Other people get healed and other people get brought in to the community in so many ways like Jesus did. But then look what happens in Acts chapter 11. After Peter has gone to be the guest of Cornelius and he baptizes him and allows him fellowship with the Christian community, it says this. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? All of the sudden, the parable of Jesus and his story, the church is actually not in that same character. The church in this moment looks a little bit more like the authorities, the Pharisees and Sadducees that were criticizing Jesus in the gospel. Now, what I love about this story is that they did listen and they found a different way to look at it. They course corrected, which is really, I think, good news for all of us because it means they never got it all right. We won't ever get it all right. But notice how if we think of the gospel itself as a parable, it offers not only a mirror of what we're really doing, whether we're actually following Jesus or whether we're actually patterning ourselves after those in the story that we don't want to be, but it also offers us a way of redemption. The story itself offers us a way to course correct, a way to think differently to change our thinking, and maybe to reorient ourselves to what it is that we truly hold as our beliefs. And so we've explored these ways, the history that Luke uses, his emphasis on scripture and its witness and how it meets the witness of the church. And then Jesus's parables meet with Luke as a parable itself. And we can certainly see that all that Luke wants to do 
is tell the story that he is so passionate about and that he hopes, dear Theophilus, dear lover of God, you will have this fire in your bones too. This story will get into you. It will come alongside of you and it will be the thing, the criteria by which you judge your life and the way that you live in community with others. Well, grace and peace, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's. We are uh, continuing in our series in Luke. Uh, we've had a great lecture from Dr. Evie Arnold, and we're all here back together to talk more about these next few chapters of Luke and uh, and kind of riff a little bit on, on what we learned in the lecture uh, and, and what we all can uh, take from these next two chapters of Luke. So, Evie, take it away. Uh, well, today, of course, we're talking about something that all the, the history... Uh, buffs out there will love. And it's not about historical facts, but the whole reason that we even write history and the whole reason that Luke says that he wants to compile a sort of historical narrative is not to describe the past so that it's quote unquote preserved, um, but he's writing a history to shape the future. How does that influence how you read this gospel? We are the future he was talking about, right? <laughs> so I think I think that's one of those interesting things is to to if we think about who Luke was writing for. I mean, maybe I don't know how far his his scope he he was thinking, mm -hmm. um, but but we are kind of those people. So it kind of makes you wonder, you know, what what he thought about uh, who we would be at that point and what vision he might have had for the church in the future. So. Mm. I know when we think about this, we think about being future oriented as opposed to past oriented. But it kind of makes me want to uh, take a fine tooth comb and look at the history of the church and see how uh, the church has taken on this perspective and how it has informed each future. Right. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Because like 50 yeah. years from after it was written and received first, that was a future. And 50 mm -hmm. years from that and all the way up to now, it makes me want to look and see how we understood and how specifically uh, the book of Luke has has shaped us. How has it has informed our faith? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, w I was actually at this great coffee shop in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, mm -hmm. um, and they took the old mayor's house. Mm -hmm. And they converted it into this wonderful coffee shop sort of gathering place. And it was interesting to me is they, the owners said, you know, people in the community got a little upset because they are more into preservation than they are into change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said, what's interesting, though, is sometimes change is the way that we preserve things, right? right? Because look, they've, they've preserved this this historical right. building right. and they're getting people to actually come and be in it. Right. So Jeremy, when you talk about when we think about that future, like it doesn't, you know, they weren't letting the past die, no. but they were shaping it so that it could do something different in the future. So I like that interpretation of, you know, how is the past going to make a new future? Um, it we don't have to necessarily kill everything off. Yeah. Um, sometimes we, we preserve something by changing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's understanding what we are trying to preserve. Like it's the essentials that we're trying to preserve. It's usually not all the other details that we think are so important to us emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, we, we stop there. We stop there and go, oh, it was the way we, the fact that we always sang this song in this way. 
Well, it had nothing to do with the way we sang the song in this way. It had to do with why we sang the song. Right. And, and when, we, when we don't ever move past that and get into the depth of well, why was that happening in the first place, then we miss how that can be the grounding for the future of future vision, future decisions, et cetera. And I think that's what Luke was trying to do. I mean, I think this whole, you know, first couple chapters, he's going back to not necessarily all the details of mm -hmm. the when and the where and the why, but it was the, what was God trying to say to us in those aspects? And I think we miss that a lot. I mean, very little of scripture tries to get into the when and the where. Correct. <laughs> right. That, it's not that a science was, book. It's right. not a history book. No. It's not. Mm -hmm. But that reckoning back to the mysterious birth that is mm -hmm. so prevalent, right? And those tropes that kind of happen over and over again that calls us back to the core of something, mm -hmm. not the things that are dancing around it. I think about the space we're in right now that at one point in time, this was the first sanctuary. Right. And it served that purpose so faithfully and so well. And people still tell the stories of <laughs> this place and the chairs that make the swoosh. And then, right, there's all this thing. But this was the place where the gospel was nurtured. Mm -hmm. And and we worshiped here. And, and then this became a place where fellowship was nurtured, right? And then now there's a place where the gospel is nurtured for young people. Like the core, Jen, like, like you were saying, the core is what's most important. We get caught up in all the things that are danced around it. But then he's also leading us in a trajectory towards something greater. So, Which is interesting because uh, we're preaching about our core values with this this week, acceptance and hospitality, which is a hesed, it's faithfulness, it's I'm going to be as faithful as God is faithful and kind, loving kindness to me. And that's what I read in chapters one and two. That's the core of the history is that it is in the Roman Empire. It is in, in all these other facts that are non-Jewish. Mm -hmm. And then there is this story of humanity and and what God is trying to do is to become incarnate for not just a group of people, but for all of humanity, even the nooks and crannies um, Jesus is born into. Mm. And that's, that's that loving kindness and faithfulness to everyone. Mm. That's that acceptance of this is the world as it is, and I'm going to come in this world as it is, and I'm going to accept this world as it is, and then I'm going to be, I'm going to be hospitable to it so that maybe the whole world will be hospitable to me mm. as the incarnate Christ. Mm. Continuing to think about, like, especially what you said about the core values, right? Like, how thinking of this passage as future shaping alongside being past telling, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is the exact same thing the core values do. They're supposed to continue to shape us. We're supposed to be able to return to them over and over and over again. But, it, but like, both with the core values and with this text, it, like, thinking about it that way makes me want to open up because it makes me want to go, you're trying to shape me. How are you trying to shape me? Let me get into let me get intimate knowledge of exactly how you're trying to shape me for the future. And we should do the same thing with our core values. What of our what are our core values trying to make us? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I love how you all are bringing in that aspect of the local history, like the history of your church. Like it, I, I think that when we start to look at the gospel story this way, of how it's blending those those stories, it's taking the past and using it in order to shape the future, um, it makes us start to think about our own histories, local and even personal. Um, and where, you know, how do we use our own stories and our own histories in order to see God or in order to show others where we've seen God? Mm -hmm. Well, my husband and I always joke that we're not the people we married. 
Um, <laughs> you know, we've been married for 13 years now. And and if I was if he was still the same person I married 13 years ago, I don't know that we would still be married, right? <laughs> and and the same the same for for me. And and so I think recognizing that that evolution, individual, institutional, however you want to you know frame that, is is good. You know, we should grow and change as people. We should you know grow in our understandings and grow in the depth of of who we are. And um, and I think you can say the same for for institutions and for our faith. That if my faith was the same it was as it was when I was sixteen that what what have I been doing since then right mm-hmm. our faith should grow and change over time as well so mm-hmm. well and it says if we just take this as history you know then Jesus stops being born in the places of today you know I mean we read this today because we go where is it that God is trying to be incarnate mm. in the empires of today and, and and this is our history and God's continuing God's still alive Jesus is alive the Holy Spirit is still alive and so where is it? Where's the nook and cranny? Where's the poor little stable? Where is the, where, where, where are the, who are the shepherds that need to come and be the first invited to incarnational moments? And we have to be able to take the root of that and the understanding of why God allowed this all to happen in this particularity of way and go, and so in Central Florida in 2022, what's the incarnation story? Mm-hmm. What is the nativity story? And who should be there? Jeez Louise, that's beautiful, Jan. Yeah, that's like when we read the gospel, Jesus is born where we are. When, mm-hmm. we read the, when we read the gospel, the disciples are called where we are. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we're even in that number. That's yeah. beautiful. Mm-hmm. And when this place was named St. Luke's, it was to be a place of healing and hope. That's the thing I've been told all these years, the healing and hope. And what that looked like in 1977 and 78 is different than what it looks like now, but it's healing and hope in the name of Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's... You know, it's interesting because I think healing and hope came later. Oh, yeah. I think when it was actually de- designed, and that's what we should call Jim, I think it was actually supposed to be a place of good news and gospel and evangelism. Oh, okay. And so, still, yeah. and, and but gospel and evangelism is the core that leads to healing and hope for people. So it's, so even, even just that story, you got to go back to the original, you know, Methodist roots, which were really, really a powerful point of, and it was going to be for people who Luke's gospel was trying to reach, which was everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and it's, and it's going to that if it's, if it's evangelism and it's healing and hope, who needs healing and hope right now? (laughs) And it, and it's not necessary. And I, I say this a a little more crass than I mean, it's not all of us right now. There, there are people in our community, uh, yes, I need some versions of healing and hope in my life, but not in the same way that certain people in our community need it. Yeah. Um, and so for us to be able to set our own needs aside, to recognize who around us is most in need of acceptance and hospitality, as we are talking about now, that that sometimes it's not me, that that I am not always, while, while I have a gospel to tell, I am not always the center of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if I have, have owned this gospel for myself, then I set myself in in the role of Jesus, not in the role of, of those Jesus is caring for. How do I then become Jesus and ask that question of who who needs who needs this right, right now and what gospel is needed to be told right now? You know, that's a really important aspect. Um, there's a, a sort of not a big debate, but there are a couple different camps of scholars when they look at the gospel narrative as a genre and they ask, you know, what is a gospel narrative. Mm-hmm. And there are some that say it's a biography of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like this is telling the life story of Jesus, which 
I, I don't see that. When you compare it to other ancient biographies, this doesn't have the same things. Well, we skip most of his life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so that'd be that's a pretty pretty poor biography. <laughs> and the, the reason we're talking about history today is because really what this is, is this is a history of the early community that surrounded yes. Jesus. Now yeah. it's very, it's very Jesus centered, mm -hmm. like Jesus, it's a person centered history, but it's not just about that one person. It's really about how does this one person and the events around them shape the people around them. And so I think that is such a great way to to get it exactly what you're saying is that me telling, as we say in the Baptist church, my testimony, <laughs> it, it may start with me. I may be able to share, you know, how God has shaped my own history, but it doesn't stop with me. And it's, mm -hmm. it's the whole purpose is not just to tell people about me, but really for that story to grow. And then for me sometimes to even recede in it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and where are there whole populations or other people that I, I'm glad to take the stage in my story of how I've seen God work. Yeah. So I think that's, that's beautifully said. Yeah. Once you accept Jesus and once you understand Jesus and once you have decided to follow Jesus, the story is, never, is not about you anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that the needs and the context change, mm -hmm. right? And that, mm -hmm. that what was effective and needed here 20, 30 years ago is different than what is needed now, but the core is still the same. The gospel is still the same. It still compels, um, and so it causes us to continue to be transformed. Mm -hmm. So just out of curiosity, you know, since we're talking about testimonies, mm -hmm. <laughs> were, were there, have there been those moments, you know, like what Luke is recording in the gospel, that this moment that Jesus arrived, mm -hmm. um, even though in comparison to the emperor that's in Rome, which is how the, the birth narrative right. starts, while Augustus, you know, was, was Caesar and was handing out decrees, this child was born to an impoverished family in a, a cave where there's sheep, and yet this is the thing. This is the thing that everyone overlooked, and yet it's the thing that changed the world forever, both the story of, you know, the Bible and the story of humankind. Um are there moments that altered the whole course of time for you that maybe others might not have noticed? Do we have those moments of sacred time alteration um, all, all the time? Ooh. Like you mean personally in our yeah. own personal lives? Or, or collectively. Or collectively, I guess, mm -hmm. is, you know, there's... I mean, as, as we're all thinking, like, I think it's interesting that that's how it happened for Simeon in chapter two, right? Like, mm -hmm. he's been waiting for this thing, and this is this pivotal moment for yes. him that now he can go in peace, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the consummation of all things. That that, that seems to be, mm -hmm. it's there for him. That's a big yeah. transformative moment. And that's not even Jesus dying on the cross no, and being raised from the dead. holding yes. the three, eight-day-old yes. Jesus in his arms. He is seeing yes. salvation. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, not even, there's no yeah. preaching yet, there's nope. no healing yet, there's no cross yet, there's no empty tomb. It's mm -hmm. but for him, the incarnate yeah. Jesus born in his life. Yeah. You know? I know for me, it's, it's, there's, my personal is, is, is more of just a continual evolution. Like I was, I was born in the church, I was raised in the church, uh, I was nurtured by the church, and my, my faith has been uh, uh, ongoing. 
um, and and I don't have a, a Paul Saul Paul moment. Uh, I do know my my call was when um, the mass shooting happened in Columbine. That um, and I preached about this uh, earlier in the summer. That that um, these two kids were in darkness and pain, and they hurt a lot of people. They killed people, and people were looking to blame them for those things, blame other things for that. And my question was, where who was showing them light and love? And that was part of my call into ministry was. I need to be someone who's showing light and love the gospel to other people. And so that was a moment in history that sadly is lived out week after week when there's more mass shootings. Um, but how am I being a part of bringing goodness and, and acceptance and love and the gospel into the world? That was a moment in my story, in my history, that, um, that compelled me and changed me. I think for me it was when after years and years of me and my my dad working with my best friend to try and invite him into the life of the church and his family into the life of the church just cuz it wasn't it wasn't to save his soul or anything like that it was just to surround him um and then the the student ministry that he followed me and we, we went to um, told him he couldn't be a part of the church. Mm. And I realized that's not what I, that's not how I read the gospel of Luke. <laughs> or any of the gospels and for any, that matter. Right, right. But especially that <laughs> yeah. gospel of Luke, that yeah. this whole, especially these first two ver- two chapters is really about, you know, Jesus being God coming with us, Emmanuel, God with us for um, everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the church doesn't stand for that, I can't stand for that. So I think that's probably that moment for me. I have a few, but one, and I can't remember what I've shared on the podcast and what I've shared in sort of Ask the Pastor Anything days and things like that. But um, one that was a huge turning point in my call to ministry was um, working with a youth group and Um, After my first week working with them, I had two teenagers come and ask me to sit with them at church. Um, And there was something that happened in that moment that I couldn't tell you then the fullness of it, but seeing them be the ones to reach out and them taking the initiative and them, you know, in that way, that really, I had always had a passion for young people. um, But I think that really started to spark my at the time I thought it was a call specifically to youth ministry over time I have realized and and other things other moments um where most folks know that intergenerational relationships and culture is is something that that has has stolen my heart and I think is is one of the huge keys to the future of the church is is being that space where generations know one another and and love and care for one another because that's that's how we we were designed to to live and how God you know has, has designed community to look like. And, but I see that moment being a huge turning point. Um, that was just, again, it was just a, Hey, you want to come sit with us? Like that was the entire experience, (laughs) but was a huge turning point for now how I see my values as a pastor, as, as someone who, you know, works with churches and, and wants to be influential in that way, um, to help see that bigger picture. So. 
It's interesting because even as we talked and as I'm listening and kind of going back over my own story, I go, that's why I'm so, that's why the word has said means so much. Mm-hmm. That's why that Old Testament word. So, so the yeah. fact that this was written in an Old Testament way to bring forth that conviction, mm-hmm. I, I go, yeah, that's why I'm so convicted about that world, that protective mm-hmm. faithfulness mm-hmm. that God has. Yeah. That's where it comes out. from. That's where, like, I didn't know that word when I was, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years old and that incident happened. Um, but I know it now and mm-hmm. and will not ever let it shake me. Well, and because I've been here with you and heard you talk about it so much, that 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 is part of that story now for me right, too, right. because mm-hmm. you you will not get me more riled up and uh, than when right. people say those kids or this generation or it's just because they look at their phone like you I I will rant all day about how yeah. none of those those things are are fully true none of those things are are what's really going on it's because you don't actually know each other and and it's it's the same thing mm-hmm. that that if we knew our young people if we knew or if our young people new older generations that that we would never just make broad statements about why they are the way they are or why what's wrong with them and and all of that kind of a thing because we would sit with them and and we would have those those experiences um to be able to to frame some of that and so so it's that that same hadn't been told we wouldn't be able to interpret our future and our future calling through that and when we think about what we talked about last time, um, how Luke is telling this story in such a way that this will shape how the reader feels about it. And he's presenting history saying, look at these two historical things happening. Which was the one that was actually changing the world? It was this small, unobserved one. Now we're a people shaped by the story to pay attention to those moments that might be passed over, but might be like your story of the two mm-hmm. girls with you. This might be the the time that's that alters the course of history right. for someone um, or for me or mm-hmm. for us that we don't know. Um, but this story is shaping us so that we might actually notice and develop a sensitivity to mm-hmm. those sacred time altering moments. And see them as God moments. Mm -hmm. So when we tell the history and we're grounded in it and we're grounded in why our values are grounded in the word of God and the story Mm -hmm. of God, then we become a part of that story because we look at those little places and go, oh, this is this is God doing some work in me. Well, I hope that God is doing work in you this week, St. Lucas, and uh, we hope you will come back and join us again next week and uh, let us know what your God moments are this week where you start to see God in the little things. 